0: welcome beautiful people to camp koji my name is joel and thank you for joining us i break down the biggest gaming news from the week that was on the only podcast you will ever need now on today's show we're going to talk about epic's major legal win the last of us online getting cancelled and we're going to end it by giving a eulogy to e3 so first off i wanted to talk about two stories i guess two updates From last week, the first one being about the Game Awards, which broke its viewership record with an estimated 118 million live streams, a 15% increase from last year's 103 million. This means that the show has grown every single year for the last 10 shows. And I'm not really surprised by this. I don't think anyone should be really surprised by this. Especially because, you know, from the very beginning, Jeff and his team decided to make this a live stream experience and then choose not to sell streaming rights to any one platform. And I guarantee you that platforms have tried. I, there's, there's just no way that Twitch and YouTube have not tried opening conversations about having the show exclusive on their platforms when, when, when the stream happens. So it's been pretty it's really interesting that Dave kind of just outright just said no to all all of that and decided to just say not only is it streamable on all these different services it streams simultaneously across the world so in China you can watch it I think their equivalent is Billy Billy. I might be wrong about that but you can watch it on one of their large uh, platforms I think the same could be said for a lot of countries I don't know the exact number of places that have this uh, multicast. And that's one thing I do love about the Game Awards. It really is a global event, not just for, uh, you know, the showing of it, but also with the voting process, a lot of, not a lot, but all of the outlets, over 100 outlets that vote on nominations and then eventually vote on the winners are from publications all around the world. Some from Brazil, China, Japan, And you can see a list of those on the official Game Awards website. So that's pretty cool. But that's definitely why that number is so high. And it's also why the Oscars or the Grammys will never, ever, you know, surpass it. I think the Academy Awards record was set like in the 90s or something like that. And it was less than 50 million, I believe. So this show definitely pulls in more viewers than a lot of these Uh, big-time award shows combined. And that's a fact that I had brought up on the most recent video that I added to our YouTube channel. It's called The Game Awards Needs a Reset, where I spoke about the 2023 Game Awards, went through talking about why some developers and and, and fans don't trust the awards, and sort of just like a little bit went into some of the things that they can do to make it a little bit better. And I think that unfortunately, like the success of this show is also almost like a boon where it continues to be successful. So I think internally they may look at these numbers as like, hey, you know, we're doing everything right. So, you know, why should we even make any changes, which is kind of unfortunate because I feel like there are a lot of changes that could be done to the show. Some people have suggested you know, separating the awards from the premieres. I've heard a lot of people saying like, "Hey, split it ninety minutes. So ninety minutes is just premieres, and then ninety minutes is just awards." And I disagree with that because once the awards start, then you know you're gonna your viewership is really 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 gonna drop. But I think what's interesting is that it can also be used as a strength to balance out and allow more awards to be given out at the show. Increase that number from 13 to maybe at least 16 or something like that. Or find ways to be able to get more acceptance speeches on there. Like one idea that I was talking about, which is something that award shows have done in the past, which is one presenter giving away two awards. You save a lot of time that way. So as soon as you give out one award and they walk away, the applause starts to die down. Whoever that presenter was, just starts presenting the next award. So there are kind of a lot of things that could be done in order to get more people on that stage. And I think what's really interesting about the Game Awards is people show up for the promise of premieres. You know, no matter how they walked away from it, whether they walked away from it positively or they look at it into like ah, oh, it didn't really feel like there were that many premieres there. It didn't matter. They already watch. I don't think that affects someone from or is going to stop them from watching next year and I feel like I wish that they would use that as a strength which is something like we're going to get those views we're going to get over 100 million even if we were to balance this out in the sense where we're having to say no to more people say no to more premieres or having to strictly enforce time slots and tell companies hey your trailer cannot be more than three minutes for example you could, there are so many things that you can do And uh, it's kind of unfortunate that I feel like that viewership is looked upon as like, okay, look, it it looks like we're doing everything right. Instead of it being like, well, we know people are going to show up. So let's use this opportunity for next year to actually do a much better job or just literally just do a job (laughs) of really properly celebrating the year that we just went through because. I feel like that's one of the biggest problems with this show. It really doesn't celebrate the year that we had. It really just celebrates what's going to be happening within the next few years. And the other thing that I want to briefly touch on was the day before. So I, I briefly spoke about this last week about Fantastic finally releasing this game. And I think right after the debut of last week's episode, they announced that they were shutting down the entire company. And that means that they shut it down just four days after the game launched. The game has now been removed from purchase on Steam. You can't even buy it anymore. And they revealed that they are working with Steam to ensure that anyone who requests a refund will be granted it. This is how do I put this? I I, I want to say it's really funny. I'm going to walk away from this thinking that this is something that I deem extremely hilarious for so many reasons. And one of them being, you know, the most successful cha- the most successful video on my YouTube channel is titled is the day before a scam. And uh, when I created that video, I definitely did not know it would do as well as it did. I think I just caught it, caught that story sort of at the right moment when I was noticing some chatter on Twitter and I, I went to the day before subreddit and then I went to the day before's Discord and that's when I discovered like, okay, this is actually like a thing. A lot of people think that this game isn't real and that's why I made that video and it's funny because when I first saw that, that game debut, from the very first trailer, I was like, well, this isn't real uh, because it was for me personally, I can't speak for everyone obviously, it was very clearly what we call a target and targets, usually don't see the light of day. It's not really something that's shared in the public. It's usually only shared internally. And what that means is that you put a team together and you create what's called a vertical slice. So you take pretty much like a very small portion of your game. So like for what we saw from that very first trailer on the day before, you're only seeing like a one block radius of that game, right? It's very, very controlled you know, everything is cranked up to the max, right? Everything looks really good. There's ray tracing reflections and, you know, uh, coat is moving in the wind. The the, the weather effects are amazing. The animations look amazing. And it's simple. It's because you haven't added, you know, 97% of the rest of the game. That's why you're able to sort of crank everything up. But, you know, as you add more stuff, you can't, you can't hold on to that same fidelity. So you create these targets, and normally that's only used to sell your game. It's either you use it as a proof of concept to show, to shop around to a publisher, or if, let's say, you're owned by a major publisher, like maybe you're Sony Santa Monica, and you want to show Sony a concept for a new game, you need them to give you a thumbs up to you know write you the check to, to pay for that game so you would have small teams each create small concepts and sometimes you'll create five or six concepts and then from there you'll whittle it down you'll create a target video to once again try to get people to invest the thing that fantastic did though is that they shared that with the rest of the world and their eyes were clearly much bigger than their stomachs it was something that i went over with that video talked about all the red flags But the reason why I want to bring it up again is because I might do another video. I'm writing it right now, but it's going to be like a really short one because I'm honestly kind of I find it really funny how many YouTube videos I've been seeing, how many articles are calling this game a scam. And I get it, right? I'm not defending Fantastic. They obviously changed the game from what they originally did. They were deleting YouTube videos to try to hide what they were doing. But the reason why I find it funny is for two things. Number one, this is a pretty terrible scam because they didn't keep up with the scam. They shut it down after four days and they're granting refunds no matter how long you've been playing the game. Uh, That sounds like a really bad scam to me, right? Because they literally, then this means that they made away with zero money outside of uh, whatever they were paid to put this game together by Mitona, but they probably now owe that publisher, Mytona, probably a lot of money, right? Um, so this is a pretty bad scam, if, if you ask me. But the reason why I find it funny is just because no, I, I see no one taking responsibility online for how the hell were you guys stupid enough to pay $40 for this at launch? I think that's one of the videos that I want to do, which is like, scams are clever this was a really stupid one like this company showed you for years that they they are were not going to be able to deliver and then you're the idiot that paid for it and you're like oh this is a scam they scammed me it's like it's it's the equivalent of someone you know on the on the a train telling you, hey, in this in this bag, in this box, I have a PlayStation 5, $25. And then you open it up, and it's just a bunch of bricks. And you're mad at the person that sold it to you. I'm like, no, I'm kind of mad, and I'm laughing at you for being the idiot to buy it. That's kind of the same thing with uh, with the day before. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's not really much more to add to it. They pretty much just cut and run. And it's really weird because there's some people who are actually still playing the game. The servers are still up. They haven't shut their servers down, which I think is kind of interesting. I wonder if that's some sort of agreement with Steam, like they have to keep the servers up for some time. I, I find it interesting that they haven't shut it down yet. But on to our next story, which deals with Epic Games. And this comes to us from The Verge. Sean Hollister wrote all this. I'm taking this from two separate articles. So after just a few hours in deliberation, The jury in Epic versus Google found that Google turned its play app store and play billing service into an illegal monopoly. Now, what makes this win very, very interesting is that in 2021, Apple won a similar trial against Epic Games, beating claims that it had violated antitrust laws by charging mandatory in-app transaction fees and kicking Epic's game, Fortnite, off the App Store. So when Epic was going through this Google trial, I sort of said to myself, yeah, there's kind of no way they're going to win this, right? They didn't win against Apple, and Apple definitely has a much more closed ecosystem compared to to Google, right? They own the hardware and the software, and they really, truly do have a walled garden there compared to what Google has done with the uh, Android Store where you could load third-party apps and, and circumvent Google, but, you know, they give you, like, this warning and all that crap. But with Apple, you can't even do that. So I kind of stopped following this story until this headline, and I was like, whoa, they actually won. And The Verge, they brought up a, a lot of good reasons as to why this went Epic's way this time. So something I was learned in the trial is that Google also tried to offer major app and game developers deals to keep them from bypassing the Google Play Store. Uh, They codenamed it Project Hug, which gave top game developers up to hundreds of millions of dollars worth of credits, co-marketing, and support. So apparently they had something built internally where they realized that Epic Games leaving the Google Store and trying to sell their games separately in order to bypass the 30% uh, you know fee that they charge could become like a domino effect where, where Epic Games and Fortnite is such a huge game that them doing that may cause other publishers like Activision, Blizzard King and, and all these other developers out there that uh, make a lot of these successful mobile games to try and do the same. So what, Google tried to do to prevent that was to approach those companies beforehand and sort of sweeten the pot a bit by once again, helping them with their co-marketing. I think maybe messing around with some of their fees and stuff like that, giving them elevated support through their own internal system. So apparently that played a big part. And then there was a lot of discovery about there was preferential treatment from different applications. Spotify pays 0% when it uses its own in-app payment system. While a competing subscription service might pay 11% of its revenue if it's even allowed to use its own payment system at all. So this was really good to showcase how there is preferential treatment within Google and they have the power to pick and choose uh, who can who who can has to pay that 30% fee who doesn't who can bypass it I think they also brought up like Netflix has a lowered fee where it's like 10 or 5% or something like that apparently the jury also saw that Google intentionally deleted evidence there was something that was proven where it was something along the lines like internal communications were set to automatically delete after 24 hours and then the judge did you know, make it known to the jury that this could be considered in their decision, like taking into consideration that what was in that evidence that is now not recoverable could have been damning evidence. That was something that they were able to use to be considered to make their own decision, whether to side with Google or side with Epic Games on this case. Now, what's interesting is that Epic never sued for monetary damages. It wants the court to tell Google that every app developer has total freedom freedom to introduce its own app stores and its own billing systems on Android. And we don't yet know how or even whether the judge might grant those wishes. Both parties will meet with Judge Donato in the second week of January to discuss potential Revenue. So part part of this this lawsuit was not Epic suing for damages. They basically were suing to try to get a a pretty landmark decision made that tried to prove that Google created a monopoly by creating what some would refer to as a walled garden, meaning that you create a device and an operating system that has such a huge market share that you are not now able to dictate competition through various means. And this is definitely a landmark ruling for a lot of reasons because it's something that can affect other ecosystems that we're used to right now. Like there are rumors or not rumors, but I guess you could say the same about Steam. You you could even say the same about PlayStation Xbox's own stores. The fact that their competitors aren't allowed to sell their goods on the stores that they themselves have put together or built. But obviously those are a lot harder. Steam would probably be easier to prove in terms of, I wouldn't say that they have a monopoly, but that they have so much market share at this point in time that they can really dictate the ebb and flow of pricing for games, especially pricing for PC games because they have so much market power. But this is definitely a really good verdict, mostly for Microsoft, because as we know, Xbox has been really public about their plans. They were really public, Satya Nadella and Phil Spencer, saying multiple times that one of the motivating factors behind buying Activision Blizzard was King, was the fact that they were purchasing one of the biggest mobile game developers right now on the market in a point in time where they are very interested into very seriously entering the mobile market, not just in the sense of cloud gaming. Obviously, that's like a huge part of it, which is, you know, for if you look at companies like PlayStation, like Xbox, the mobile phone or the mobile market, you can pretty much look at it as like a Trojan horse because it is the most used gaming console in the, the biggest growing markets in our industry right now. When you think of India, when you think of Africa, um, as two examples, when you think of China, really when you think about video games emerging emerging and growing in those markets it's mobile that's mainly mostly what they're what they're what they're using and it's also a really great way to sort of circumvent a lot of local licensing and tax laws so we just saw what happened in brazil with having to raise the price of the xbox Series S in order to, according to Phil Spencer, pretty much get as close to break even as they possibly can. And pretty much saying that, look, we're not really making a lot of profit on this. And I think that's that's a decision that Microsoft made a while ago where they look at it as like, hey, if I can sell software and not have to worry about manufacturing hardware because of the immense amount of overhead, that comes with manufacturing hardware. Like that sounds like a really good path for us to take, or at least a secondary path for us to focus on outside of just dedicated consoles like the Xbox series and whatever it is that comes after that. This is huge, huge news for them because if this happens, if let's say, for example, this judge does rule, that yeah, you know, you have to allow every developer one of two things. Number one, you have to allow developers to uh, have their own storefronts on your, um, on on Androids. And number two, you have to allow them to have their own payment systems, which means that Google is no longer allowed to collect 30% on every single thing that's sold. And this is one of the, the reasons why Epic has been fighting against Apple and Google is the fact that when you think for about a company as huge as Fortnite, every single cosmetic, every single battle pass that's sold, you have to cut 30% to um, the storefronts. And that includes Xbox, that includes PlayStation, that includes in- Nintendo. 30% is this standard fee. Outside of Epic themselves, I have 12% and a few select PC storefronts. Really for our industry, 30% has been the standard for quite some time, which, a lot of people are arguing, and I personally agree with that argument that 30% is too much on top of the fact that you have to use their dedicated billing services. That's why you have a lot of applications on Apple, for example, like I know that Spotify does this. Well, when you go on the Spotify app through your iPhone, and let's say you try to subscribe to a monthly plan, it doesn't let you. It tells you, yeah, you have to actually go to our website to... Uh, you know, subscribe to Spotify, and they apologize about it. But the reason why they do that is that if you go through Spotify's website, all their the, the percentage that they're paying is just the processing fee to process your credit card. So out of that ten dollars, they're losing maybe two at the most three uh, percent that they have to just pay through for a payment processor. That's a heck of a lot less than giving Apple thirty percent just for selling something through the App Store. So for Microsoft, this really changes a lot because this means a few things. Number one, this means that they could open up their their own mobile app store. And I think for me personally, I don't think Xbox is satisfied with just putting Game Pass, for example, on mobile phones. I think for them, they truly want their own mobile storefront. They want, I, I truly believe, and this is obviously just a theory, that Xbox wants to be like the Steam of mobile games. They want to create a storefront where they they are creating teams and they're they're going out there, especially to indies, and trying to acquire these games that launch exclusively through their mobile store, um, and maybe launch simultaneously on, all, on on Xbox and mobile. And then of course you have the advantage of being able to be a publisher that owns so many IP and so many video games for you to exclusively launch through your mobile store. And if this decision were to come down to the from the top, then that means that you can successfully open one of these stores on Android. And you know, obviously, this wouldn't affect Apple at this point. But at the very least, you can open up this storefront on Android, which is the world's most popular operating system. It's definitely not Apple. I know a lot of iPhone users think it is. But this, this is the golden goose. Like if you're Microsoft, you're like, yeah, if one of these two had to win, I want Google to win this one because if I'm not mistaken, out of all mobile phones used around the world, 70% of them are running Android as an operating system. So for Microsoft, it's like, well, this is the bigger share. So this is the one I would rather be able to open my storefront up to. Um, yeah I mean we'll have to wait till January to find out exactly what this means but this is a really 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 big deal and then this also sort of applies extra pressure against Apple because I know that I believe it's in Europe that they're really trying to fight to get something similar passed for Apple and they've been pretty successful if you think about a lot of like the good things that Apple has done lately it's because the EU forced them so when you think about them finally moving over, joining the rest of us, the rest of technology uh, and using USB-C, that was an EU law. When you see them introducing more parity with messaging, with Android phones, that was an EU proposition that they are now adhering to. Um, so yeah, it's, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see to, to, to see where this goes. But this is a major, major landmark ruling Next story is about Last of Us. So last week, Naughty Dog announced the cancellation of The Last of Us online. Part of their statement reads, quote, we've made the incredibly difficult decision to stop development on The Last of Us online. The multiplayer team has been in pre-production with this game since we were working on The Last of Us Part Two. To release and support The Last of Us online, we'd have to put all our studio resources behind supporting post-launch content for years to come severely impacting development on future single player games so we had two paths in front of us become a solely live service game studio or continue to focus on single player narrative games that have defined naughty dog's heritage we have more than one ambitious brand new single player game that we're working on here at naughty dog we cannot wait to share more about what comes next when we are ready. Now, before I give my thoughts on this, I wanted to go through a brief history of The Last of Us dedicated multiplayer. This mode was first confirmed in 2019 when fans expressed disappointment that The Last of Us Part Two would not ship with a multiplayer mode. So when it was revealed that Last of Us Part Two would be single player only, a lot of fans were upset. They thought that there was gonna be a return to that faction's multiplayer mode. And Naughty Dog put out a statement that basically said, hey, it was something we thought about, was something that we were working on. But as we were working on it, we realized that, I can't really say it verbatim because I don't have it in front of me, but they were basically sort of implying like, we we what we put into it was growing so big that it wouldn't make a sense as just a side mode and that they want to really focus everything on single player. And that was the first time that they confirmed that, It was possible that this was kind of growing into its own thing. That was in 2019. In June 2022, Neil Druckmann released concept art for the game at Summer Game Fest. Around May 2023, that was when Sony revealed that beyond fiscal year 25, they expect their business model investment to be 60% live service and 40% traditional. And in that same month, Naughty Dog announced that the list of The Last of Us Online would be delayed. Shortly thereafter, Bloomberg's Jason Schreier published a story that claimed the last was online was delayed to reassess its quality and learn long term viability. That's when Jason Schreier revealed that Bungie was actually one of the biggest reasons why it was delayed. Apparently, they looked into the game and they raised questions about the long term viability of it and its abilities to keep players engaged like a live service game has to in order to stay afloat. That was the last time we heard about it outside of last week when they finally confirmed that, you know what, this game is actually not going to happen. This was, in my opinion, just like PR gold. I mean, gold. When you think about, you know, giving bad news from a public relations perspective, this was just beautiful. And it just worked perfectly because you saw the response from it. It really genuinely didn't feel like there was much of a negative response from this. There really wasn't a lot of people upset. And this should be in a PR playbook somewhere. Because what they did was they basically disarmed a lot of negativity against this cancellation By coming forward and making it, playing it out to be like a lifelong decision for Naughty Dog as a company. What they said was they reached a fork in the road. And it's almost like they were speaking directly to their fans and they said, look, we had a decision to make. If we stuck with this game, this is going to be our future. We have to dedicate everything to making this multiplayer work which means you get less single player games. And they basically tell him like, well, yeah, but we're always known for single player games. So doesn't this sound like the right decision? And Of course, everybody sort of agreed with that. The other part of it that I found very interesting is that Naughty Dog made it sound like this was their decision. And I don't agree with that. Um, They sort of made it sound like, you know, we made this decision Uh, and that doesn't really seem true to me uh, because if this was truly a Naughty Dog decision, in my opinion, this game would never have become what it became. Um, That is proof right there and just sort of a reminder that Sony owns this studio. Let's be honest. This game probably started off as like um, almost like a remaster of that factions mode. I guarantee you that it started off something like really small that way. But Sony, over the last two years or so, two to three years, noticed something that some, a a lot of other companies are noticing, right? Which is, the money is in live service. As much as our fans enjoy these single player games, there is profit to be made, we're doing well, they pale, completely pale in comparison to live service games. It's, it's literally just not even close. And sometimes I, I, I brought this up in the past where there's a particular article and there's a headline and I think it was from thegamer.com where the headline pointed out how Hoyoverse, the company behind Genshin Impact, uh, Genshin Impact, Generated more revenue than the entire PlayStation division, and sometimes I like to imagine a scenario where that was brought up by an executive in a meeting. Like that came up on a slide, and they looked at it at that, and they said, "How is this possible? How is it possible that this one mobile game is exceeding revenue for our entire PlayStation division?" And I liked it's like a story. I have in my head that that's how this all started. That was that was the the snowflake that started the avalanche of live service commitment when it came within PlayStation. So, no, I do not believe that this was a naughty dog decision. Like, they themselves went to Sony and said, hey, you know what? We're sick and tired of this. We're not doing this live service stuff anymore. My theory is that two things happened here. Number one, our industry is going through a bit of a live service reckoning right now, where companies are starting to realize that sometimes it's not worth risking the intellectual property to deliver something that the fans that made that IP popular would not meet you in the middle with. With this Last of Us Online, by making the decision of going live service, you are effectively basically telling the people that made that IP popular, this game isn't for you. Like you're taking an IP that they're used to and you're building something that a lot of them are going to wholeheartedly reject. The other problem with this is a problem that we're seeing a lot throughout the industry, which is taking a team that is built to do one thing, right? The team is built to create single player narratives and then forcing that team that was built for that one purpose to do something else at a point in time when they are not ready to do that. It's almost like PlayStation going to the San Diego studio that makes MLB the show and saying, hey guys, can you make a twisted metal live service game? (laughs) Like, you can understand why that really, it's probably not a good fit, you know? Um, That's exactly what's happening here. We've seen so many, there's enough examples in our industry that this, in my opinion, this should never have even started to begin with. So when you look at Anthem, right? Anthem was a game that took BioWare, and they said, can you make a live service game? obviously a disaster you look at teams that were built in WB um, whether it's Gotham Knights or Suicide Squad upcoming Suicide Squad two abject failures because you're taking single-player team that's that every design decision and every decision that they make serves one purpose It's a great story a great narrative I'm delivering you a great time For 60, 70 bucks. I'm trying to jam pack this as much as I can possibly put in here. But the design decision mentality has to change. It's forced to change when you create a live service. Now, when you're designing for Suicide Squad, now you have to design extra garbage. You have to design flags and animations and emotes and Uh, you know, special effects so that later on you can change the colors of those special effects when someone buys the Bane pack. So now, you know, instead of blue sparks, it's green sparks because you have the Bane Venom pack and all this utter gutter fucking garbage that now you're forced to build. That's another reason why, another perfect example is Arcane. You took the same team that made Prey, critical commercial success, right? A game that so many people still talk about. And he said, hey, make me a live service. That's how we got Redfall, this utter gutter garbage. So there's so many examples out there. And I think what happened with Last of Us Factions is I think two things simultaneously happened. Number one is Bungie going to Sony and saying, look, this is probably not going to work. And I think the other thing, and this is why I guess in a sense this was Naughty Dog's decision, I think internally that's what started to happen. I think the leaders at Naughty Dog started going to PlayStation and saying, look, our team is just not interested in doing this. And I, I truly believe that that's what happened. And obviously that's a theory, right? I'm not inside of those walls. And what's interesting is that shortly after the news broke, a supposed image of the main menu of the game leaked. And it looked exactly like what you expect from a live service title. It even had a battle pass section. And it's one of the things that that one single image to me would have been more detrimental to The Last of Us IP than anything else that PlayStation could have done. Like literally, because like I said, the design decision, the soul of of, of that IP is now gone because the motivation is no longer I'm trying to deliver a great experience. The motivation is I'm trying to squeeze money out of you. That's my motivation for this video game. That's the design of the game from the very, very beginning. And I think the irony about all of this is that if PlayStation would have told Naughty Dog, we love the multiplayer aspect. We want you guys to keep it small keep it old school let's deliver a lot let's deliver something that's really replayable we're not gonna really make promises on like adding a bunch of stuff but let's deliver a lot of maps a lot of weapons uh, make it as replayable as we possibly can and let's let's add it in a last of Us part two remastered right scrap this whole roguelike thing that you have right now obviously that's the scenario that we're in right now. But let's say you scrap that. And you say, last was part two remasters coming out. Uh, it's going to be $70, but it includes a multiplayer. If you already own it, $10 through $20, you can pay and you can upgrade it. You get this free multiplayer. This multiplayer would have taken over, absolutely taken over because it would have been an experience that I think a lot of people missed. I think there are a lot of people that are missing that type of multiplayer where you pay one price, it has progression built in. You can unlock things naturally. And there is no pressure of I'm selling, I'm selling you extra emotes, extra garbage, extra skins, extra trash in here. And maybe you build something that, hey, for, the, for year one, this is all the free content that we're adding. We're gonna add four new maps this year, blah, blah, blah. They would have killed with something like that. And it's, it's so interesting that we get this story right next to God of War Valhalla, which is something that was given away for free, and it seems almost unanimously people are saying, yeah, you guys should have sold this. Even I was undersold on it. When I first saw it, I was like, I don't want to play a roguelike. That this is garbage. I don't want to play a stupid mode. But I haven't been able to play it yet, but I'm reading all these stories about how, like, yeah, they actually added a lot of story. It's a really beefy... Uh, addition to the God of War lore. And I'm just like upset. I'm like, Sony, you guys suck. Your marketing, like your PR did so well with this Naughty Dog thing, but, but now your PR, your marketing did such a poor job of of selling uh, such a, an expansive DLC and making it sound like it's just like nice little throwaway free mode that you're adding to it. But, you know, overall, obviously this is, something that should be taken as positive news. I think it's so interesting for so many reasons. I know that there, I've seen some people online that, you know, obviously classic console war shit that are talking about like, oh, but look at Xbox are able to do this. Look, Halo was single player and multiplayer. Look, they can do both. Wow. You guys PlayStation can't, can't do either. Well, that's simple, right? Halo has had a multiplayer component since the very beginning, right? There's always been multiplayer in it. Gears of War is another perfect example where you, you have things set up. But with Naughty Dog, they've had multiplayer experiences, but they were always really small. And But the thing that I always loved about Naughty Dog multiplayer, and I'm going to use Uncharted 4 as an example because I honestly don't even remember if I played factions and I can't even answer Why? I think maybe I played it once, but I honestly don't remember much about it. I don't. I can't really answer the question as to why that that is. I just honestly don't remember because I definitely played Last of Us at launch, but I remember Uncharted Four. Uncharted Four was a really fun multiplayer. Like it wasn't the deepest, greatest multiplayer you've ever played in your life, but it was just really, really, really fun. Like they took a lot of the combat from that single player and they perfectly translated it into multiplayer. And it's like, man, I really wish they would have done that here. And that's why I find it funny that Naughty Dog in that announcement, they made it sound like, look guys, this was our decision. It's like, no, not really. Like if Sony told you guys, Nope, you guys got to build. This This is our decision. You know, that's why I'm thinking that there was like some sort of internal turmoil. Like, I, I could definitely see them saying, like, look, if we can do this, but I'm going to lose a lot of employees. No one wants to work on this shit, <laughs> you know? I wonder if that was one of the reasons I sort of forced Sony's hands to said, like, okay, let's just cancel it. Let's move forward with something else. But it is, overall, it's the right decision for the IP. And I, I, I don't think this is the end of life service for PlayStation, but I think that PlayStation needs to invest into teams that are built to do this. Teams at Sucker Punch, Naughty Dog, uh, Insomniac, they are not built to do live service. It's a completely different design philosophy, which is really good that you you know bought Haven Studios and they're working on fair games. That's a studio that was built from the ground up, hiring people to build just that, to build a multiplayer experience. So I, I kind of think that that's the route that they need to go. They either need to start working with uh, other third parties in order to become almost like a second party publishing for something multiplayer, sort of like they're doing with Hell Divers, for example. Uh, and for the love of God, bring SOCOM back. Like SOCOM, that's a good idea for, for for something multiplayer. If you guys want to do live service, stop taking existing single player IP. I don't think that's a good idea. And finally, before we go. We have to talk about E3. So E3, unfortunately, as of last week, is officially dead. The official E3 account tweeted a photo that read, "Quote: After more than two decades of E3, each one bigger than the last, the time has come to say goodbye. Thanks for the memories." The, ESA, the ESA's president and CEO Stanley Pierre Luis or Louis told the Washington Post, "Quote: We know the entire industry, players and creators alike, have a lot of passion for E3." We share that passion. We know it's difficult to say goodbye to such a beloved event, but it's the right thing to do given the new opportunities our industry has to reach fans and partners. This is—I'm I'm going to say it's sad. I'm not going to go as far as to say it's really sad, and I, I want to elaborate on why that is. E3 is was always an interesting event because. It was always something that as as gamers, we always looked at it as like the Mecca, right? It was like the Super Bowl for us. And I think it was something that so many gamers thought about and really wished to attend at some point. And obviously, for a while, it was really industry only. It was only, I think, the last year that it was public, which was E3 2018-19 or something like that, that they started to make it public which in my opinion was one of the reasons why E3 was dying uh, outside of them not really innovating in terms of the digital landscape. They should have been innovating a lot earlier than they were doing. But E3 was one of those things where I always try to explain to people that I myself attended three separate E3s. I attended once as a writer for a website. I attended once as as part of a publisher when I was with Nintendo and then the last year that I attended I just went as a freelancer just pretty much to hang out took a couple meetings here and there but it was really just it was the first time that I just kind of went to enjoy E3 and it's always an interesting thing where I always try to explain to people that number one if you went there as a consumer It was the, it was, I I didn't think it was a good thing to go to simply because I think if you looked at it as like, oh, I want to go and I want to try out unreleased games, I don't know how anyone did it. I truly don't understand. When I was at E3, the only times that I played or viewed or did anything at E3 was if I was on a press list for it or I was invited through a connection that I had. Because I don't understand how people can wait like three, four hours to like, to play anything. Like I remember one of the years that I went to have Resident Evil 2 remake playable. I was like, man, I wanna try this. So I was like, I'll try next morning. I'll try it coming early. And of course the corridors were already filled the doors open people are running like animals pretty much and i told myself i was like no i'm not doing this i'm not running through a crowd of people where if i trip i can probably get stomped to death i was like i'm not i'm not doing this i'm not playing this game so i walked over to the capcom booth and of course i was already aligned i asked i was like how how long is the wait and they said it's probably an hour and a half i was like nope not interested. Like, <laughs> there's, I, I can watch Resident Evil 2. I can get how it's going to work without me having to actually touch the controller. So, to me, opening it up to the public was sort of like bad because it defeated the purpose of E3. E3 was never about being open to the public, it was never about playing games. It was a trade show. That's how it started. It was a show focused on doing two things, uh, you know, on behalf of publishers and developers. Number one is it was a trade show and an opportunity for you to sell to retailers. That was probably priority number one when you were at E3, which was trying to convince large retailers around the world, taking meetings, whether it was distributors, third-party distributors, or, you know, major publishers like Nintendo, Xbox uh, to maybe publish or pick up your game or large retailers, GameStop, Best Buy, Walmart, to convince them to make a large order of your video game that's supposed to come out in the holiday. The second purpose of it was obviously marketing in order to use the press as a vessel to sell your game. So, once you open up to the public, now you're losing the reasoning behind the trade show. It just kind of doesn't make any sense. The other problem is that you, by opening up to the public, you are now putting more pressure on developers and publishers. Number one, you're putting up way more pressure of of, of booth design, which if you're a press person, it doesn't matter if I'm... Um, Meeting you inside of a room that doesn't have painted walls, or if it's a hotel room, it doesn't matter. I'm there to cover this game and write a story. Um, the other thing is you add pressure to the demo itself. Where if you're showing a demo to press, you know, I've played demos before where it crashes, or you know, some textures are missing, or things like that, or the frame rate might crack or 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 or, or dip a bit. But as a you know, a, a writer, a journalist, content creator, whatever, you have like this understanding of, of okay, this is early, that's going to happen. When you open something up to the public, you have to ensure that your demo is as perfect as you can get it because now you have the public and cell phones and being able to record footage of a video game and say, wow, this game sucked because the frame rate kept dipping uh, and they're not going to really share that yeah this is early in development so you can create so many other problems when it comes to that Uh, um so i think that opening up to the public was kind of a mistake and then the second mistake i think the biggest reason why this is dead is because they just didn't innovate when it came to digital showcases they should have seen the writing on the wall when nintendo started doing their own directs and everyone started doing their own things and then especially when PlayStation pulled out and PlayStation was like, look, this is getting too expensive for us. It doesn't really make any sense. We'd rather control our environments ourselves. At that point in time, the ESA should have came together and said, maybe we need to make this a little bit more digital and and make it happen, which is what I find ironic because that was the main reason why Jeff Keighley left. According to Jeff Keighley himself, he said that that was one of the things that he was trying to convince the ESA of, of like, look, we have to change. We have to modernize this thing has to be a lot more digital. And I think the ESA was like, no, I think physical is still the way to go. And that's when Jeff Keighley said, yeah, I'm done, I'm leaving. And that's why he tried to start his own thing, which is now the only thing, (laughs) that being in June, which is the Summer Game Fest. And, you know, for me, I think if someone were to ask me, what's the biggest thing I'm going to miss from E3? It really is, once again, what the show was made for. It's a lot of networking. It was really good to connect with other writers, other journalists. It was good to be able to connect with developers and publishers and be able to have really cool conversations. Whether it's at the bar after E3, during E3, uh, you know, after parties, whatever it, it it was, I think it, I think that's the big thing that a lot of people are going to miss. It was it it was the industry part of uh, of that event. And it sort of looks like that's a hole that Jeff Keighley understands that needs to be filled. That's why I, I've been seeing a lot from summer game fasts that been, they've been expanding to doing something physical along with the digital is that they do have a bit of a dedicated time to something open to the public, but the bigger space where more people are showcasing their games, that is open to, privately just for buyers and for the press, which once again just makes more sense because that's what this event is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a marketing event, it's supposed to be for people from different websites to go write up the game and then share that uh, with people. And it also drastically lowers the cost of a show. You don't have to worry about uh, having a crazy amount of booths to to, for thousands and thousands of people who are going to attend it, uh, sort of publicly. So I don't know. It's it's just kind of weird because it's like, that's like the big thing that I'm going to miss because I was looking forward to attending another E3, but that was sort of my biggest reason for attending was reconnecting with, you know, people I used to work with at Nintendo or reconnecting with, other people around the industry that I've worked with. And that's just kind of, I'm not going to say it's gone now, that's been replaced, I guess, with Summer Game Fest, which to me is sort of, it really kind of is another issue and kind of an interesting one, which is Jeff Keighley now owns uh, or, or runs and heads the three of the biggest um, events for our industry for the year which is Summer Game Fest, which now stands alone in the month of June. Um, we have Gamescom Opening Night Live, which takes a place in Germany. And then we have our premier award show, which I just said had over was 113 million viewers happening at the end of the year. This one guy now heads these three major industry events. And it's like, it's the Kanye West track. No one man should have all that power. I feel like there's a really, really powerful position to be in, let's let's kind of be honest. And I think that, I think what Jeff is going to do, which is kind of, it's really interesting, which is that Jeff Keighley has not addressed this. There has still, to this day, has not been a single post about E3 dying, which is really interesting. Because every time E3 in the past has said either they're canceling an event or they're scaling back. I know he did it last year when E3 said, hey, sorry, we're actually not going to have an event this year. He immediately tweeted, hey, Summer Game Fest happens June 11th or whatever the date was. Like, yeah, kind of petty, but I understand it, right? It's his show. He's trying to sell it. So I was baffled by the fact that when this happened, he didn't come forward and say, yep, Summer Game Fest was still happening. It was happening in June and sort of capitalized on E3's cancellation. He also just didn't address it or say anything at all, which I kind of found really interesting. Maybe I missed it. I'll have to go back to his Twitter. But he always talks about how E3 got him a start. He, He attended, according to him, he attended the very first E3, which happened in 1995. So I don't know, just kind of, a bit interesting the fact that he did not address this at all. The fact that it's um, it's been canceled, but I think what he's probably going to do with summer game fest is now work alongside Microsoft, Nintendo and PlayStation to um, I, I think that June will still be like a, a hot moment for marketing for our industry. But I think obviously a lot of going to be digital and I, I can see Jeff Keighley sort of working around the schedule of the big three and maybe if Ubisoft has their own showcase again for example and turning Summer Game Fest into almost like the umbrella that everything else is contained under and Summer Game Fest would be the website that you would now go to to find out what's happening this second week of June. PC Gaming show is Tuesday at 5. This show is happening at 8. So I could see him trying to coordinate and make sure that nothing kind of bumps into each other because I feel like that's still an important job to happen. That was one thing that E3 did well was to make sure that it benefited us as viewers and it benefited the press to ensure that no two events were happening too close to each other, for example. And yeah, I mean, it sucks. Definitely rest in peace. I had so many amazing, amazing moments during my time at uh at e3 i think i think one year i went which is kind of funny because i think it was like 2016 17 was the year i went skull and bones was playable on the show floor which is just really funny because that game still hasn't come out and it was like the very very first version of it where it was just multiplayer not really live service garbage focus whatever the hell this thing has sort of turned out to be um but yeah, like a lot of a lot of moments, a lot of my memories from E3 are outside of E3. Was having you know breakfast at this one famous breakfast spot that's right around the corner from E3 that a lot of um, people go to uh, at night after you know because it's open twenty four hours after the after parties and stuff like that. But I think that's really what I I'm gonna miss the most is those memories of hanging out with friends and just having fun you know during during those times and be able to to connect and and uh connect with people around the uh, the industry i think that's that's definitely the thing that a lot of people are going to miss and yeah, you know, i think that summer game fest is in a good position to sort of fill that void which is good i don't think that's really something that's going to go missing necessarily This week's hot releases, December 18th, we have Terra Nil on Switch. December 20th, we have Resident Evil 4 Remake, iPad, iPhone 15 Pro and Mac. Time for us to wrap it up, stories we didn't have time to get to. Activision Blizzard has entered into an agreement with the California Civil Rights Department to settle its 2021 case alleging sex discrimination in its employment practices for $54 million. As much as f- forty-six point seventy-five dollars will be paid to female employees who claimed they'd received inequitable pay, $9.125 million will cover attorney's fees. Um, Actors at Blizzard definitely got off pretty easy when it came to this. Uh, for a few reasons, according to California, they could not establish, I guess, in, there wasn't enough proof that there was Uh, on the harassment claims. So this payout is really just about inequitable pay, meaning meaning that females were not paid the same as males, but apparently there were portions where it was proven that they were paid similar amounts if there were very similar um, positions, for example. In contrast, right, Games was forced to pay 100 million in their sexism lawsuit. Uh, It's just interesting to see this finally settle because this was famously the catalyst for Microsoft beginning to open conversations for purchasing Activision Blizzard. It's also really interesting because obviously we heard so many stories come out of Activision Blizzard. Um, We don't exactly know what's going to be the remedy to those other accusations that were made, Um, but this is just kind of one thing. But yeah, $50 million is pretty close to a slap on a wrist as you can for a billion dollar company is kind of nothing to them. Next up, Tim Stewart implied or Xbox CFO, Tim Stewart implied. They've considered moving Game Pass into growing regions by saying for models like Africa or India or Southeast Asia, maybe places that aren't console for first. You can say, hey, do you want to watch 30 seconds of an ad and then get two hours of game streaming. This is something I can 1,000% see happening in the future. I don't have any problems with ad supported models uh, for streaming services. I just find it interesting. I don't know exactly how you would implement that into something like, like Game Pass. Is it something where like every three hours you have to watch a 60 second ad and now you have to build it into the game where what is it like a warning screen like you warn the player hey in 30 seconds an ad is going to play make sure you save or pause your game i don't even know how you would even implement something like this um but it is something that i know for a fact that even playstation is probably considering something like this it is it is a really healthy avenue last week it was revealed that Valve was issuing bans in dota 2 by disguising them as in-game gifts once unwrapped the player receives a highly toxic lump of coal that instantly permabands them. This has to be one of the funniest things I've ever seen. That was like one video that I was doing the rounds of a streamer opening up one live, which was phenomenal. I just love when companies do this. Uh, I love when Activision has been doing it with Call of Duty where the last thing that they did was that if you're cheating, they increased the, 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 the speed of your falling so even if you jump like off a small ledge it accelerates your fall by like 10,000% so it instantly kills you <laughs> i love to watch things like that because it's a good way to publicly embarrass uh streamers uh you know in case they're trying to hide cheats you sort of expose them to the world i love stuff like this and i wish more companies were doing it And then finally, last week, Hideo Kojima confirmed he was partnering with A24 in his upcoming Death Stranding film. This is a bit confusing, of course, because Hammerstone Studios was previously attached to the film. But Deadline reports that Alex Lebovici will remain on board as co-financier and executive producer. This is pretty much like a match made in heaven. A24 and, and Death Stranding and Kojima Um, This definitely elevated my excitement for the film because A24 is usually extremely careful about what they choose to distribute as a film. I've seen some people kind of saying that because of this press release that went out that it means that Kojima is directing this film. And no, I don't think that that's what that means. It doesn't make any sense, um, especially because... Translating Death Stranding to film sounds kind of expensive, you know. Having a co-financier sort of proves that this is going to be an expensive film. And I don't think A24 is going to invest that much money into a first-time filmmaker. Even if Kojima makes a lot of games, even if his games are cinematic, doesn't mean that he's going to be a really good filmmaker. And I don't think you'd bet that much on uh, Kojima. So I think Kojima would definitely still serve as producer and he'll help in the script writing process. But I can't imagine that they're not going to hire a director and writer for this. Uh, I know I said that was finally, but actually there's one more. Journalist Jeff Grubb claims that he expects PS5 Pro to launch around September 2024 for $600 and it would contain a proprietary DLSS-like machine learning upscaler. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I would definitely be interested in in a PS5 Pro if it has a (laughs) DLSS-like upscaler. I would definitely be the first to sell my PlayStation 5 and use those funds to buy a a Pro. I I, I tweeted about this. I said, if Xbox doesn't have an equivalent to this, then PlayStation 5, is going to grow sales like four to one compared to Xbox's because by default when this thing comes out with Grand Theft Auto happening in 2025 if Xbox doesn't have a an equivalent the PS5 Pro now becomes the best way to play what is going to become the best selling video game (laughs) you know for for quite some time right that game is going to break one hour, ten hour, twenty-four hour week long records immediately, month long records when it when it releases. And without a PC version, PlayStation by default, that PS5 Pro will be the best place to play Grand Theft Auto Six. And for me personally, I'm gonna be honest, that's worth alone the price of admission. If somehow, for example, with that upscaler that they're talking about, it's the only place at launch to play Grand Theft Auto 6 at 60 frames per second. You sold me like that. That it's just incredible luck for PlayStation at that point. If Xbox doesn't have anything that they can rely on a third party to be the biggest system seller, and it doesn't even have to be anything they do first party. Which of course they're probably going to have a lot of good first party stuff leverage it. I also find this it, maybe this is also one of the reasons why we haven't heard a lot from PlayStation's lineup. Right, we, have, we have we have absolutely no idea what PlayStation is really planning outside of Wolverine. And maybe this is it. We haven't heard about it because maybe they want all their games to take advantage of this new machine, which is kind of interesting. Shoutouts. We got two. Shout out to Hideki Kamiya, who in an IGN interview revealed part of his reason for leaving Platinum Games. Well, he says, I don't think of games as products, but rather as works of art. I wanted to put my artistry into games and deliver games that could only be made by Kamiya so that players can enjoy Kamiya games exactly as they are. I decided to leave the company and forge my own path to continue making games that reflect the developers who made them. I love this because I think it's one of the biggest issues that our industry faces is trying to basically turn video games almost like into a machine just to produce profits. And that's how we get garbage like Suicide Squad, for example, where that entire combat loop is all based around hey, it's live service. I need to keep you playing this game. And I think we would have gotten a much better game if it was not forced to be live service. And I think that's one of the things that he's alluding to here. Uh, where we saw what happened when Platinum Games was forced to make a live service game called Babylon's Fall, and that game lasted like six months. <laughs> for example, so that's definitely a good reason to leave. And another shout out, I kind of shout out Phil Spencer. He posted his Xbox year review and revealed that he spent 917 hours gaming across 82 games. Look, whether you love or hate Xbox, you got to respect Phil Spencer for the fact that this man actually plays games. Let's be honest, Jim Ryan did not play video games, okay? And you know, you could also say that's, One of the big uh, reasons for their success, he was so business-minded. He kind of kept the ball rolling. Uh, And I I can probably say the same about Doug Bowser. He probably plays a couple Nintendo games, but he doesn't. I don't think think Bowser's as big of a gamer as Phil Spencer. But I think it's good from like a fan perspective to see like the leader of your favorite brand plays so many hours of video games. You know, he put so many hours in Starfield and Diablo, which is really great to see, right? Uh, thank you guys so much for joining me. Please follow us on Twitter and YouTube at Camp Coaches for future updates. Once again, I'm Joel, and I'll see you all next week.